Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me is my loyal co-host, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? With you in person, Mark. I know. Face to face. Walker has a very special guest in the Swag Studios, and it's me! <laughs> now, li- listeners, I don't know if you can hear this. Oh, it's my face. Oh, it feels... It's can like... you hear that meat flapping? I, I'm, I'm, I'm the in the ruff, ruffling jowls. I am with the meat space. That was Walker's face meat. <laughs> I am with Walker's face meat in person. It's amazing. Anyway, this is a board gaming podcast about board games. We're going to talk about the games we played last week, the news, and why it doesn't matter. And we're going to talk about our feature game, which is Cryo by Tom Jolly and Luke Laurie. A game so fun it will not make you want to cryo. Sio. <laughs> so, Walker, what did you play last week? We got to play, we went back to On Mars. I said, Le, Le Vidal, Lacerda, squash as many mechanisms into a box as you possibly can. Why did you do this? Because it was asked, Mark. Okay. Who am I to say? Reasonable. When I have a copy on the shelf, this yes. is by the the Wendigo, they who not, the man who may not be named. The Wendigo appeared. No, he didn't appear. That's just his game. Oh, sure. Because if the Wendigo comes and asks to play on Mars, oh, you play on you Mars. Get, you get that to the table. No doubt. Yes. So, once again, many, many mechanisms. What you're doing in on Mars, you're making these decisions because you're in, there's two different area selection areas either you're on the planet or you're up in space and you have to figure out do i want to stick around and and do some actions before other people get a chance or do i want to keep hitting these bonuses that you get every time you switch places and as the game advances the shuttle goes back less seldom and so you're stuck in a place you know for a few turns or you can take rockets you know more seldom i think seldom means infrequently sorry yes or you can take rockets to you know preempt the shuttle all sorts of ways to get around it but it's an it's very interesting it's one of these games where you're putting out buildings but other people are using them so it's hard to plan on what you know to lock down certain things and if you don't get to places before other people do and there's definitely bonuses that are better than others so if you've played before you know what you're doing if you own this game and it's in a group that you played a lot this would be a fantastic experience. It's a great game for that type of thing. Something you go back to, something that everyone learns together, that everyone knows to the same degree. And because it has lots of different, you know, ways you can peruse it, I will play it anytime because it is semi-interesting. You know, you do have to do a little bit of learn every time you do it. Lots of moving pieces, but I like the crunch on Mars, Fidel Serta. I couldn't help but notice, Walker, that you pledged for Vitaliserta's latest on Kickstarter. I did, and it is the fault of how I felt playing on Mars. It's just that that extra level of planning in your head of, you know, of going through six turns ahead and and trying to figure out when the end of the game is going to hit and watching all the different objectives tick down and what's going to trigger the end of the game and and just the niceness of what Weather Machine looks like. I'm I'm a sucker. What can I say? All right. Well, look, I'm I'm glad you enjoyed On Mars. I'm glad you like the graphic design of the Eno Tool. I think I declared in our last episode of Pledge of Indifference. I've gone from relatively indifferent Eno Tools graphic design. I'm now anti Eno Tool graphic design as far as the board is concerned and his use of iconography and his overall graphic design. I think he can make a mean cover. Don't get me wrong. Eno Tool covers are great. And some of his work in Cube Rails games has been very, very attractive and functional, but uh I'm glad you're happy, Walker. There you go. Makes me makes me happy that you're happy. 
I got to play Pulsar 2849. I commented previously while reviewing Praga Caput Regni that, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to things like Vladimir Suki, and I think the same could be said for a lot of medium-heavy Euro designers that lack that kind of personality, that kind of spark that you might find with something like an Uwe Rosenberg, something like a Reiner Knizia, something like a Vlada Kvatel, that one will probably do you, so you might as well stick with your favorite. And I'd forgotten how much I like the dice drafting in Pulsar 2849. It really does introduce some player interaction and some trade-offs that I, quite frankly, think were absent in a lot of Praga Caput Regni. So you have the cleverness of a Vladimir Suki design. You have a lot of the noise, which can sometimes be good, sometimes be bad. But in Pulsar 2849, I appreciate the sci-fi trappings, thin though they may be. And I very much appreciate the dice drafting and the way that technologies interact with everything. I feel like the special powers in, in 2849 are a little bit more interesting and a little bit easier to track. One of the things we both commented on about Praga Caput Regni is that one of the key challenges of the game is just making sure to tally up all your bonuses. And in Pulsar 2849, I find the, the bonuses more compelling and easier to implement as an end user. So in Pulsar 2849, it's also a little bit more focused in terms of the scoring. Mostly it's about setting up and spinning gyrodynes, and they're going to get you points every round. A variable amount based on the setup you have, so there's considerable variety in terms of both the technologies you have and in terms of the amount of points that gyrodynes will be worth in different rounds. This is variability that you see from the outset. It's not like you're going to get surprised at the end of, end of the game. And I thoroughly enjoyed it, introduced it to Huey and Louie. Louie, as you well know, is sometimes hit or miss with respect to Euro games, but he enjoyed it as well. He announced at the end of the game that he had only been two pulsars short of his super weapon that would destroy the universe. I loaned him two of my pulsars, and then he flipped the table. So a good time was had by all, suffice to say. We laughed, we cried, we lost 15 pounds, we destroyed the known reality as is understood. That was Pulsar 2849 by Vladimir Suki and CGE. This was put out in 2017. Nice. Speaking of Kickstarters that we spoke about just briefly ago, Hibachi finally came in. And this is an old re-implementation or reskin of, I think it's called Sanfranito. Something like that. Safranito. Safranito. A saffron. As in exactly. It's from saffron. San Fernito is a uh, is cr a cross between San Francisco and the San Fernando Valley. So oh, I thought it was like a, a, a Mexican food you could only get in San Francisco. Close. A, Fren a Fren San Fernito. Um, so in hibachi, what you're doing, it's more of a. I will say this. I was going to say this later, but I'll say it now. It's more of a like a convention or a game night type of game. It's not sort of like a sit down sort of because it's a dexterity game. What you're doing is you're pitching these discs onto this ringed board so they don't fly out, and you're either trying to buy ingredients for these dishes or you're trying to sell ingredients so you get more money because you have a handful of chips and they're all worth a certain amount from 100 to 600. So if you have some sort of dexterous skill, say, you can throw your chips onto where you have lots of resources so you can sell them for a lot of money and you can sell, throw the the lower ones onto ingredients that you need so you don't have to pay so much. And whoever makes the, you know, the three dishes first is the winner. So what distinction are you drawing when you said that this was a game night kind of game and not a sit? What are you talking about? Uh, it's it's not like, you know, like invite friends over and this is the game we're going to play. It's more like, you know, you know, sort of, you know, event type fun, you know, walk around the table, not sit down and and play type of thing. It's more like, you know, make sure you can get up and you walk around and convention setting, you know, draw people in that kind of ramp up excitement type game, because 
it is not very much to it. You're just pitching discs and you're making three dishes and there's some mechanics that are wonky. It's like whoever gets to three first wins. And so it's like turn order really matters. And mm. and then they have this spice mechanic where if you don't land on anything, then you get these spices. You can trade some spices in for uh, random, not random. So for what they're wild, two spices are any ingredient you need or if you're using the expansion, you, they actually need some spice cards. And then if you go to get spice cards and there's none left, then whoever has the most spices, guess what? You lose all your spice cards. Mm. So that's a great mechanic. <laughs> so, I was afraid for a moment that you were implying that there was a time when dexterity games are not appropriate. And that would have been deeply challenging to my core. No, no, definitely not. But there's a lot, there's a lot of dexterity games that are just a sort of sit and we even played one today where you can just sit and you do the thing. You can even do things in the middle, but this is more of a, I want to get a different angle. I want to get around to the other side of the table. And sometimes if you know, in game in someone's home, sometimes you don't have that room to right. do that. Right. So this is more of a big space type of game. And this is published by Grail Games. They put out this new edition and the designer is Marco Tubner. You introduced me to the Siege of Rundar. I'd been looking forward to trying this for a while. We've talked about this on the show before, or rather Walker has. This is the Reiner Knizia cooperative game put out this year in which you are dwarves attempting to escape with gold. And I liked it except for the ways that I didn't like it. I enjoyed the game thoroughly. It's important to remember that Reiner Knizia arguably invented the modern co-op genre with Lord of the Rings, which in turn, which in point of fact predates Pandemic by quite some time. And although Lord of the Rings is not my bag, because I have an intense dislike for, for most things Tolkien, it is nonetheless the case that Reiner Knizia, although he doesn't design co-ops as frequently as a lot of other prolific designers do, really knows what he's doing in terms of co-ops. And the Siege of Rundar is kind of sort of a deck builder, kind of sort of a dice game. And the kind of sort of deck building elements I mostly like, and the kind of sort of dice game elements I definitely don't. Because when you are fighting any of the enemies, and fighting the enemies is not a victory condition unto itself, at best, they are an indirect contributor to the victory condition. Most of the time, it's just avoiding further bleed. Sometimes there are enemies in the victory condition area, and so you need to kill those enemies in order to progress the victory condition at all. And so fighting is definitely a necessary part of the game. And sometimes, indeed, your hand, because like many deck builders, your hand can be very variable, is telling you to go fight things. And oh my goodness, <laughs> this is not the kind of game, like for example, Street Masters, where you're going to be pitching lots of dice, and no matter what happens, something is going to come out of it. Now, very often when you're playing a game like Street Masters, or like Too Many Bones, or any very dice-heavy co-op game, you're going to go, and you're going to whiff, and you're going to look at your dice and say, oh, well, that's not what I expected. Well, all right, I'll be able to sock this dice towards this thing, which maybe I'll use a few turns from now, and this other thing, maybe a few turns from now. No, no, no. Siege of Rundar, if you whiff, you just whiff, and there's no two ways about it. And that happens a lot, and it happens hard. It's just the distribution of the dice and the way the damage works. It's something you need to expect. That part is kind of okay, but the problem is deck builders by themselves are already pretty darn variable in terms of how they work. Rundar especially so. You've got a 12-card deck in which two of the cards activate enemies, and every round, or rather every two rounds, you bury two of those cards. Well, if you've got three really great cards in your deck, and those two awful cards that you can never get rid of, which two cards get set aside from round to round is massively, massively influential. Further to which, whether you get those two bad cards, one per hand or two in the same hand, is also 
massively influential, both in terms of the pacing of the enemies advancing and in terms of what you're going to be able to get done in your turn. All of this adds up to me to be one of those Knizia games where luck plays a very sizable influence in terms of how things are going to progress. All of that is potentially okay. It's not a huge slight against the game, because the rest of the elements I find pretty enjoyable. The trade-offs between advancing your victory conditions and getting better cards towards a communal shared market. I really like it when co-op deck builders allow you to effectively buy cards for other people. That part is lovely. There's a certain notion about specialization, about curating your deck properly. It's one of those cases where what you decide to get rid of your deck is super important, and it's not just that there are trash cards that you should get rid of because they're bad, it's more a question of, well, now I'm not as good at getting iron, and that could be a potentially huge problem, and something you need to be conscious of in terms of acquiring cards. That part is great. And I have to I have to say, I'm very pleased that Reiner Knizia has designed a brutally difficult co-op game. Normally, he's associated with a slightly lighter end of the spectrum, both in terms of difficulty and, and rules depth. And so I enjoyed all those parts. In terms of how everything comes together, though, given the length and given the fact there's a little bit too much rules grit for the amount of variance involved, I have to say it's not one of my top tier Knizias. I'd happily play again. If for no other reason, I should note that the visual appeal of the game is tremendous. I very much like the art style. I very much like how the the box base is used as the fortress, and it's very lovely. Photos, I don't think, do it justice. Because I've, I've seen photos of the Siege of Rundar set up, and it's got, you know, the custom resources and the plastic molding for the fortress and the little cardboard bits to give it detail. But in person, it was very, very good looking. Yeah, the pictures make it look very boxy. Yes. Whereas in person, not so much. Yes, it, it really, it, it, it's a very nice set piece for a, a very standard square box box size. And so I, I, the visual appeal definitely adds to the appeal of what's going on, especially since it ends up feeling like a siege because you have all these enemies approaching from all, th- all four sides effectively. And I think that the custom components got a lot of mileage out of very little design work. Just the way that you win the game is by tunneling out of a side of the fortress, and you just have these wooden blocks in a plastic trough, and you just pull out the wooden blocks as you progress them. You can literally see your progress in the tunnel. It's very cool. A lot of very clever decisions in that respect. But again, I find the variance of the dice, and I especially find the variance of the card cycling to be occasionally very frustrating. And as a result, as I say, I enjoyed my playing. I was perhaps slightly disappointed, but only by virtue of very, very high expectations for a Reiner Knizia co-op, especially for all of Reiner Knizia's middleweight games, which are more frequent now than they were, say, five, ten years ago, but certainly not as frequent as this heyday, say, 20 years ago. Anyway, all this to say, again, I enjoyed Caesar Rudar. I would happily play it again. Probably not the kind of thing that I would seek out too, too much, but I would like to see more of the alternate cards that you can buy, because in a given game, you don't progress very much through the available cards on market, which, again, kind of adds to the variance in a somewhat unsatisfying way. Well, that doesn't help when we just leave items to rot in the market that are built and we don't switch our cards out, you see. Sure, that doesn't assist. Uh, We would have cycled perhaps a few more cards if we weren't so, what's the word, incompetent. Incompetent. (laughs) (laughs) And it does have the problem that we... uh that I complain about a lot is like when you reveal your hand, it's kind of dictated. It's like, well, I have two iron cards and a wild card. And so why, why wouldn't I go to the iron and get the most iron I can? Although there are instances where there's an emergency, like someone has a siege machine and you might squeak out a couple of dice against it. So you'll bail on getting a bunch of resources and try to be the hero and take out the siege machine. But it is fairly dictated by what cards you have in your hand. I was actually reasonably pleased by the fact that, most of your good combat cards 
are also your good digging cards. And so the central tension for me wasn't necessarily so much what kind of resource should I go accumulate, but rather, well, I can either go and try to clear out this mob of orcs, or I can go and try to progress the victory condition. And that tension, that trade-off, I think is what was driving most of my hand management decisions. Although I will grant you, in some cases, it was a little too straightforward. Agreed. That is The Siege of Rundar by Reiner Knizia, published by Ludo Nova. Up for me is Isle of Sky. Always love Isle of Sky. We played with an expansion, or played, there was a bunch of expansions in this box, but most notably the Druids expansion. Apparently there were some tunnel expansions and some other small, like, promo stuff tiles, but nothing, you know, to write home about. But the Druid expansion is what made this shine. Because usually your map is kind of small. So what Druids does is gives you this whole array of tiles that you can buy at the end of the round. Like once you've acquired all your tiles and bought one tile from other people and purchased your own tiles, now there's a sort of shifting line of tiles that you can buy from the Druid board. And what these do is not only do they make your map bigger, but they open up more possibilities to scoring. Because one of the great things about uh, Isle of Sky is that it has four random victory conditions every game. And from turn to turn, different ones will score. And so maybe sheep will be worthless for the whole game, but you have all these sheep on your tiles that aren't doing anything. And you say, well, <laughs> you why, put those sheep to work. why do I have these tiles, these sheep tiles? Why did I, why did I spend so much money on these things? <laughs> and then you look at the druid board. It's like, oh, look, the druids are making these sheep worth tons of points. So you start buying those tiles and you can even start comboing double off of some of the victory point conditions. Like, oh, three point land masses are worth five points. Well, the druids want two more points on that. Now there's seven points each. And that's pretty well how the two people ran away with the game, but still loved it. More tiles, bigger maps. I would never play Carcassonne by choice if Isle of Sky was in my house. This is just the game I would play. There's bidding, there's making your own map, there's random victory conditions, there's uh, interesting sort of get more money when you're behind type thing. So it was an actual strategy that I did. I, I saw the victory point conditions that were in later game, and I slowly built towards that, making sure I was in last and building up a bunch of money. And then, you know, mid game hit hard and it worked out. And so all these different things you can try. If you have a chance to play Isle of Sky, this is put out by Alexander Pfister and Lookout Games. I have a question about the Druids expansion because I confess I'm intrigued. I'm, I'm, I've always been perfectly happy to play Isle of Sky. It's never really grabbed me. When it comes to tile laying games, I very much appreciate it when the tile geography matters. I mean, obviously in Carcassonne, the tile, the tile geography is more or less all you care about. Then there are games like Keyflower where the tile placement is very important because of how the resources move. And I was always a little bit disappointed, as was implied by your discussion when playing Isle of Sky, that number one, your map tended to be very small, and number two, the geography of your tile placement didn't seem to matter a whole heck of a lot. Does the tile geography, the geography of your own little board, as it's getting bigger, does it matter more by virtue of the Druid's expansion? A little bit, because a lot of the Druid tiles have the scrolls and a lot of people are using them. So the, the fact of closing in those scrolls for doubling the points uh, yes. is a lot more important. And there's a lot of, it's not only just tiles too. There's like special abilities you can get, which one I, I deliberately bought. I even told them when I was buying it, I'm trolling everyone by buying this tile. <laughs> and what it does is make everyone else's tile cheaper 
So you pay two less. So they, they're getting less money as you, it's so bad. Oh it's my like, goodness. It's like, because in Isle of Sky, someone will, they set the prices of their tile. So they'll set it at $4. So you give them $4 and then they take the $4 they set it at, they get eight. So what this tile does says, oh, it's $4. I'll give you two. So now you're only getting six. Mm. It's so juicy. I love it. <laughs> Juicy like a troll. Juicy like a troll. And they had all sorts of different, you know, tiles like that that, you know, changed up the rules very slightly. So it was very interesting. I'm shocked that you did the troll move, Walker. I, I just saw it. And it was more it was more that I didn't want to be trolled than the fact that I just warned everyone and said, I'm just doing this to be funny. And, and... <laughs> now, just a question. When you made this announcement that you were doing the troll move, would you rate your smirk as self-satisfied or condescending? I, about 50-50 of both. Okay, a little more condescending, but... One of Walker's many impressive features is his self-awareness and his self-transparency, and I appreciate this. And that was Isle of Sky with the Druids expansion. We streamed it with Hibachi. It was good fun. More Reiner Knizia dice. We also played Llama Dice. And I mentioned this in particular because I think it really highlighted how Reiner Knizia knows often how to calibrate a certain degree of randomness, a certain degree of chaos, and a certain degree of fun. When you are playing Llama Dice, now granted it's it's competitive as opposed to the cooperative experience of the Siege of Rundar, it's going to take you about a sixth of the time of the Siege of Rundar. And when your dice roll is bad, something funny happens. Now, some players are not able to appreciate the humor of something terrible happening to themselves. I appreciate that. But the game state advances, something happens of consequence, and usually your opponents at least get to laugh at your misfortune. As compared to the dice rolling of the Siege of Rundar, I'm not saying they're equally reliant on chance, but it's closer than I would have liked. And in the Siege of Rundar, when you roll badly, nothing happens. Literally, just nothing happens. And all told, I much prefer it when the game state is constantly progressing. Call it the Catan effect. Anyone have any sheep? No, nobody have any sheep? Roll. Anyone generating any sheep? No, no sheep? Okay, the game can't continue. And ultimately, that's my bias. I, I have a bias for action when it comes to dice rolling. But we saw it tonight, and it was not only today when we played in Siege of Rundar, but the game just before, it's like, okay, I am doing hand-to-hand, and you roll the dice, and you get nothing but range results. Right. And then the very next turn, it's like, okay, well, I'm going to do a bunch of ranged, and then you roll the dice, and you get nothing but melee results. Right. It's It was just very frustrating. It's true. Whereas the frustration in Llama Dice is purposive, and it pro- propels the game forward. And that, I think, is the better way to channel randomness. And it's weird, actually, that the dice worked the way so poorly in the Siege of Rudar because Reiner Knizia is arguably the master of dice games. And very seldom is it the case that in a Reiner Knizia game, you just roll and nothing happens, especially when you had very little to do about it. In in the Siege of Rudar, it's just you generate as many dice as you can and you roll them. And then sometimes the game tells you, ah, your turn's wasted. Whereas in some other Reiner Knizia games, for example, even a very, very not particularly sophisticated Reiner Knizia dice game design, The Clash of the Gladiators, going back about 20 years, there you're building your dice pool by virtue of the gladiators you're coming together. And if it's the case that your matchup didn't go the the way you wanted it to, sometimes that was your fault because you just didn't put out the right team of gladiators or you didn't pick the right target. Siege of Rundar, you just pitch as many dice as you can at the problem, and sometimes the dice just tell you you're an idiot. Even Sion Tempura has a has a mechanic where... Are you unfavorably comparing a Reiner Knizia game to Sion I'm afraid I am. Because, wow. because you roll the dice and say, say you didn't roll... 
enough hits, say they had a like a good armor, and he's right. like, okay, well, I'm only going to do one wound. You can sock it a die away. You can focus and say, well, I'm going to mm. use that die on my next attack. Yeah, and then at least it, you know it so slowly ramps up, and at least yeah, instead little, of getting nothing, little things like that, you yeah. get something. Yeah. Suffice to say that Llama Dice manages to turn terrible, terrible results and everyone gets to laugh. It's unfair, it's arbitrary, but it's okay. And ultimately, there is still a lot of considerations about tempo, about when to go out. We saw some very bold moves in Llama Dice in terms of bowing out of the round early because of how badly things were going, of people sticking in because they knew that if they could get out on a lucky roll, that it would be very, very consequential. You know, all the good things you want out of a Press Your Luck game. Siege of Runar isn't a Press Your Luck game. Perhaps I'm pushing the comparison too far, but I trust I've made my point. And so Llama Dice is kind of a perennial filler favorite as far as we're concerned and it shows that Reiner Knizier really knows how to manipulate randomness. It's almost like he has some knowledge of math or something. So it's still only available in German, which is a tragedy. You can get it in French now. Yes. Sorry. It is not yet available in a domestic English edition, but you can get the German and French editions. And we highly recommend you do. So that is Lama Dice by Reiner Knizier, put out by Amigo Spiel. So there's a show called The Dragon Prince, which is on Netflix, one of my favorites. And they said, hey, here's a game we're going to make. So immediately pre-ordered, and it came in last week. This is called Dragon Prince Battle Charged. And it is a very basic skirmish game. I expected a very basic skirmish game, and I was delivered a very basic <laughs> skirmish game. But it has it has all the big big hitters in there. It has miniatures for everyone. Everyone has their own deck. And when you're playing, it's a pseudo, you know, four player. It's really a two player game. You pick your two characters, you shuffle their decks together and you, you, you know, move around the board. You either play a move card or use their basic move or you play an attack card or use their basic attack. Bunch of tactic cards you can play as well. I like how they don't limit how many cards you can play. You know, you get, you do get one attack, one move, but attack the cards, you can go as many as you like. And then you can just dump your hand and draw all new cards at the end. There's a very interesting uh, energy mechanism, so you're not just blasting your best cards all the time. You have to do a certain, you know, hop, skip, and a jump in order to make sure you're recharging your focus so you can play your big cards. All in all, didn't mind it. Don't think I'm, you know, going to be, you know, yelling at the top of the mountains, you know, it's the greatest game ever, but I'm definitely going to go back to it just because I love the IP. It's a great sort of, there's these two worlds that got divided somehow, you know, elves in one half and humans in the other. I hate it already. And the elves send these like assassins to kill the king and queen and the whole family. And there's this whole, it's very interesting. Lots of politics, lots of fighting, lots of very great animation. Very cute creatures. Is it another kid show about politics that doesn't have anything coherent to say about politics? One hundred percent. Oh no! <laughs> the Dragon Prince. This is put it. This is designed by Johnny O'Neill, and this is put out by Brotherwise Games. Got to try Brian Boru, High King of Ireland. Now, this is by Per Sylvester. Per Sylvester is a fascinating designer. He's de He designed The King is Dead, uh, which was a redevelopment of König von Siam, the King of Siam. He also designed The Lost Expedition and Versindas Volk. Versindas Volk is a fascinating two-player game about East and West Germany vying against each other during the Cold War. 
And he is absolutely one of the designers, like Cole Worley, who is in the position of your designs are always fascinating and sometimes I don't like them. But they always have a very, very definitive design philosophy. The The, the epitome to this is uh, The King is Dead, where The King is Dead is, is a game where you don't control any of the factions. One of the factions will win, and at the end of the game, whoever's the most influence in that faction will win. But in order to gain influence in that faction, you need to make the faction weaker. It is a fascinating tightrope walk that I played a number of times and I find so incredibly intellectually compelling and painful to play. Not because it's badly designed, but because the trade-offs I find painful and I still have precisely zero idea how to play competently in any of those games, The King is Dead in its first or second edition, or Koenig von Sam. Verzindas Volk is, uh, I've had a little bit more success, uh, success with, but it still feels very much like Paris Sylvester. This is actually high praise. A lot of designers, you can't really point to them as having a particular design essence that, that makes them stand out from the crowd. Like, as much as I love playing Pulsar 2849, there's a whole bunch of middleweight Euro designers where it's like, yeah, I mean, it kind of sort of feels the same. Anyway, Brian Boru is Pear Sylvester's latest design. It's published by Osprey Games, the occasional board game publisher and a frequent war game book publisher. And so the ultimate question is, will Brian bore you? The sigh. I loved it. It was a great game. I love Did you like my pun? No. You didn't like my pun? I hated it. I maybe, th- threw up a bit in my mouth. Maybe maybe we could have some sort of piffy title for our content, like we will not have any puns in this broadcast. Or like, I have, there will be I, no I, more puns I, I have, mentioned in the I, context I of this no, board have, game review. I have no pun doing this podcast. Yes, so looking at the GMT cover of this game <laughs> and getting like a big glass of water ready for the rules explanation. But it I, has inset foil, Walker. Yeah. It's not quite spot UV, but I'm told that that necessarily makes the game better, according to crowdfunding. I was, in fact, dreading slightly <laughs> this game because I thought it was going to be this very dry sort of plodding through... Europe type game and then he said we're playing a trick taking game and I honestly thought he was joking (laughs) and then it wasn't it was a trick taking game where there's like real decisions on the fact that you know do I just want to lose this or can I lose this or is there any way I can halfway through I thought it wasn't really a trick taking game I thought it was just sort of like you're going to play a card and but there really is you can sort of weed out you can follow which cards are coming out you can sort of try to bleed out all the red cards and then you're left with you know bigger decisions bigger actions <sighs> the whole map figuring out how to get into different territories using the way the paths work loved everything about this game can't wait to play it again it's one of those things where while explaining it i thought some of the scoring conditions at the end of every round were going to get a little complicated But I was really just psyching myself out because the gameplay itself is silky smooth. Everything is very, very transparent and easy and simple and allowing a lot of those trade-offs. And the end of the round stuff is very, very easy and transparent to plan for. Do you have more influence in this area than everybody else? If so, you get this benefit and then this other smaller benefit gets accorded to somebody else. There you go. Move on. Time to go. And it has this lovely element that I that I very much appreciated whereby whoever is winning something at the end of the round will tend to get some consequential benefit and they will lose all their presence in that area. Everybody else keeps whatever influence they have. And so there's this back and forth element of you can keep winning it round after round. And sometimes people did, but it's hard and you have to focus on it, which feeds into the draft. It's a trick-taking game where you draft at the start of the round. And I conceptualize, this is again, this is a very Pear Sylvester kind of thing. I intellectually understand the trade-off between 
winning tricks with big cards and winning tricks with small cards. Because if you can win tricks in, in Brian Boro with small cards, the world is your oyster. Because winning a trick with a very small card is typically, well, you win this city for area majority consideration. A lot of the scoring is going to be area majority. Plus, you get all these other great resources. If you win a, a trick with a high card, it's typically lose some gold and or points and then win the city. And I kind of hoped that that tension would manifest. And it did by the end of the game. And I think, again, this is because Per Sylvester designs games that are not perfectly transparent after one play, even for experienced Euro gamers. It was really the case where, you know, the first two rounds, I think, oh, this is not going to show up. In the middle of the game, I'm like, wait a minute, maybe it can if I were smarter than I am. And by the end of the game, I start noticing it happening by people who are not me. So that's the kind of development that really indicates that, you know, it's going to reward future playings, which sadly, a lot of Euro games don't tend to do quite as much, uh, certainly uh, along with uh, non-Euro games as well. I thoroughly enjoyed it as well. I actually kind of liked its visual design. It, it looks a little tiny bit like Inish in that it's got these lovely tarot cards and kind of Celtic adjacent art of various individuals that you might or might not get to marry. I like being able to marry people in games. It's fun. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. It, it, it does have a slight edge towards the Inish art, but then it's got like this D&D &D from 20 years ago type. Point taken. That's fair. Style. So the picture of Brian bored you. Yes. Okay. Stop. <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed it as well. It was very confrontational and very cutthroat in a lot of very subtle ways, where suddenly someone taking just two more tokens off a particular space could completely upend what you needed to do over the course of a given round. And I again, I'm still just grappling with what to draft, when to draft them, how to make note of what I've passed to everybody else when I think I can win a trick with a low card. I feel like we've just barely scratched the surface and I'm very much looking forward to trying to plumb the depths of Brian Boru. I got to play a new seven wonders box, Mark. It's not just an expansion. This is a whole new game. And I played several of these games. I'd say at least 10 times this game because it's on board game arena. And this is developed by Darhuf and Lord Axel. This is the people that designed the, the board game arena. I'll take adaptation. your word for it. All right. So in this version of Seven Wonders, you'd think, how can we make it more random? Well, hold on to your hat, sir. <laughs> so at the beginning of the game, you take a whole sort of block of stuff. You get your whole wonder and you get a deck of cards and you put out your wonder all face down and it's like a nice little shape. Someone's got the Colossus, someone has the pyramids, someone has something else. And you sit in a circle. Those are the only two wonders you remember. Yeah. Okay. There's seven of them, I'm sure. Um, plus Andre the Giant. <laughs> plus Andre the Giant. And the circle matters because when it's your turn, you're going to draw a card. You can either draw a card from your deck, from your neighbor to the right's deck or left, or one from the center. And the cards have all sorts of exciting things on them, like a resource. <laughs> And that's 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 it. Mark. <laughs> I am being quite serious. So you you have your wonder that you're trying to build, and some parts of it need either you know two or three uh, resources the same, or two or three resources different. And you decide. A lot of them have different abilities when you complete certain sections of them. Either taking it's mostly all attunes to taking extra cards when it's your turn. Um, Gold is a wild resource, and then all the other, you know, there's the usual paper glass, but these all just come up with the cards. 
the don't forget though you know everyone's the player to your card and the player to your right's card are face up so you can see those but the, the card that you're choosing from the middle if you so choose is face down so it's just being chosen blind there's still uh battles because you can take soldiers and that gives you a, a certain military level but if you take a soldier with a horn, then it starts flipping over these peace tokens. When all the peace tokens are flipped over, then you compare your war score. If you got tokens based on with a horn icon, those go, go away because you don't get to keep those, but you get to keep all the other military. They do science as well. I was hoping that this was going to be the interesting part of the game. Even when I started my first game, I read the rules and it was like, oh my God. And then I got to these <laughs> these science tokens. I thought, okay, well, maybe this will give you a, a little more in-depth because every time you get one of each of the three science, you get to take a token or two of the same, you take a token. Unfortunately, all these usually pan out to is you get to take more cards when it's your turn. Ah, very unfortunate. If you enjoyed Seven Wonders Duel, it is very similar to that, except now you get to play with more players. I see. I've only heard good things about Seven Wonders Duel, except from you. I've never tried it mostly by virtue of my disdain for the original Seven Wonders because it's bizarre. Antoine Blazat is one of our preferred French designers, certainly of the past 10 years. I didn't hate Seven Wonders Duel. I, there was a few days I sat and played it nonstop like, because it was on Board Game Arena. Like I wouldn't want to sit and set that up in person. Like You're creating this pyramid of cards. I wouldn't well, why are you to... saying it's so similar to Seven Wonders Architects then if you're so down on Seven Wonders Architects? Just because it just has the same sort of feel where you're getting minimal stuff. At least there's a little more, there's a little more crunch to, ah. to duel than there is I see. architect. It, well, okay. So, th so then your primary criticism is that the cards are just so spectacularly uninteresting. Are the cards more interesting in Seven Wonders Duel? Yes. I see. Okay. That makes sense. Well, maybe someday you'll show me. We got to play Force Science. I got to prove to Walker that copies do actually exist, but of course this is still my copy. We actually got a Kickstarter update this morning saying that fulfillment was 99% done. 99% is one of those numbers that makes me think that someone is being, shall we say, overly generous and rounding up. I think it just means we gave everyone their copy except for that bastard Walker. Okay. There were 100 backers. We gave the 99 copies out. Walker doesn't get his copy. This was actually the first time I played with the expansion that shipped with the base game. Because, as I've mentioned before about Force Science, there are innumerable ways to make the game more difficult. And one of them is indeed the expansion, because it introduces new star pieces. And this is a stacking game. And in this stacking game, what you have to learn, especially as a new player, and what I constantly have to relearn over and over, is that sometimes just rotating the block 90 degrees in one direction or another will make your stacking task a lot easier. Well, these star blocks, you cannot rotate at all. They must stand up. Now, granted, you could rotate them a little bit in that you could probably try to rest one arm of the star on something and then have it hang roughly upside down. But mostly it's just going to be standing on its little star legs, being a jerk and taunting you by virtue of the fact that it's really hard to balance things on top of the skinny little star, as opposed to, say, a plank that you can just slop down and put other things on top of. And in turn, this influences the play of cards because you have to play cards to design the cures. And anytime you see a star on a card that's not at the very top, you're asking for trouble. It can be done. There was one Herculean build that in conjunction with the experience of Huey failing repeatedly and giving me advice about how to build it. And then in conjunction with both of our special abilities, we managed to get a two-star build out off the ground, even though one of the stars was very near yeah, the bottom uh, of the structure. You missed a step there because you tried it first. 
And then pass it to him. And then it came back to you. Oh, you're right. I forgot that. <laughs> it was an odyssey. And it, it ups the difficulty of the game considerably. We played twice, lost once reasonably closely, and won once barely. I've said a lot about Force Science. I continue to enjoy it a great deal, despite the fact that it's a bit of a big ask in that it is a large, heavy box and not exactly crunchy in terms of rules, but a somewhat sustained rules explanation for a 15-minute game. So, of course, the best configuration is to play several times. This is your first experience, Walker. What did you think of Force Science? I loved everything about it. The only problem with it is that I like the stacking too much. And (laughs) and I will sit there and I will stack my blocks and I will purposely make designs more difficult than they need to be (laughs) and spend more time, you know, not even caring about the clock just to, you know, do the hardest one that I can possible. There's also, I I wouldn't want to play it any other way than we did. I could saw, I saw the different, you know, add-ons that you could do. There seemed to be an event deck. And I think anything more than what we did would be a step too far when you have sort of like a real time element, they, it's a pretty big ask on what you're doing already. You're, you're building these blueprints, you're building the blocks, and you're also doing a tile puzzle off to the side. All of this in 15 minutes. Well, you know, I suppose I can't see this a game coming out a lot, you know, like a, like a rotation. So it's usually going to be like a early learn or a relearn. You know what I mean? It's going to be something that, you know, is new to people. So it's, I think it's a, a, a step too far to go any further than what we did. I share your overall impression, or at least I did when I first started playing For Science. I wouldn't be shocked if you were quite surprised or quite impressed at the speed with which your skill improves. And then you start looking and seeking those other challenges. I've tried the event deck before, and I've actually been in groups where the base game is too easy. And yes, the fact that this was the first time playing with the expansion gave it an additional level of difficulty. But it is the case that when I first started playing for science, I could not win without the expansion. I failed and I failed and I failed. And then I got to the point where base game, no expansion, difficulty level zero was a little bit too easy. Fortunately, there are innumerable difficulty levels and ways to tweak the the central formula that are not even remotely complicated or convoluted. It's very much like Eric Royce's previous design, Spirit Island. There are lots of people who play at difficulty level zero and figure, how on earth can we ever possibly win this? And then they keep at it, and then they find themselves trouncing adversaries at difficulty level six or seven. Very, very, very different games, obviously, but they both have skill horizons. So I share your sense that certainly for at the beginning, there's a, there's, there's a horizon. I also share your sense that my preferred element of the game is indeed the stacking. The designing of cures, in order, in other words, setting up the recipe for stacking, I'm usually not able to translate them easily visually into what they're actually going to be stacking. That difference, that gulf between what the cards are telling you to build and what you eventually end up with, I find conceptually and in practice fascinating yeah, and endlessly compelling. It is very interesting because if you, the very first time you play, you're looking at the cards and it sort of looks like what your structure should look like because, you know, it has sort of these lines and they sort of like make the structure. It's like, oh, I just got to build what I see in front of me. But that's not how it works. It's like one card, it could be three cards long and one line goes all the way up to a block. So it looks like it's supposed to be at the top, but it really is going to end up on the bottom. So you got to sort of like turn the whole thing sort of on its side and this block has to touch this. And even though it's at the top, it's got to touch the bottom block and love every part of it. It is such a challenge to your spatial reasoning. And it demands that you reevaluate the way you stack things, which again is one of the design triumphs of this, of, of for science. It causes you to look at stacking in a new way, which is by itself a marvelous design accomplishment. 
But uh, I get that, that highlights the third thing, the actual victory conditions of laying out these tiles. And we were in a group this time where I actually had to contribute to arranging the tiles in the sort of puzzle-like configuration to design the cure. And that is an indication about how disinterested and ill-inclined everyone else at the table was in engaging with that part of the game because I am so bad at that part of the game that I had to step up and start pulling my own weight. That's an indication in half. There's lots of different skill sets to be applied to first science. And some people absolutely gravitate away from the stacking and towards that tiling element. So that's another way in which different groups will gravitate towards different ways. But unfortunately, if you have a situation like in ours where all four of us were all about the stacking, yes, it's going to lead to some lopsided experiences and in point of fact, increase the difficulty. I like the fact that there was like a validate step where you couldn't just say, yeah, I got that and sort of kill it yourself. You had to get one of your teammates to check and make sure you built it correctly. And that leads into something that I thought was fairly, I wouldn't say ridiculous as in a bad way, but one of the expansions you can get where we, like we just talked about how you lay out, you know, this big blueprint and it's like got all these different colors and shapes and stuff. And it tells you how to build it. One of the expansion is we're going to just turn all of the colors to this different shades of blue. So you can't really associate with the, you have to only use the shapes, but the cost on that is means you have an entirely different set of blocks that are just different shades of blue. And just that, that step of difficulty up for that that much cost i just thought is ridiculous i i think that is just kickstarter bloat i don't know whose idea it was i'm not saying it wasn't the designer it might well have been but that's just an example of the kind of thing it's like well this kind of makes sense as a stretch goal i have never played with them i probably don't intend to play with them if i ever played with someone who's colorblind i absolutely would so there's there's a benefit towards accessibility in that sense you can put everyone on a level playing ground but I agree with you. It, it's just another example of this is a massive box full of stuff. It would have been a big box no matter what they did. But there is a lot of excess, a lot of it for the good, some of it for the bad, in what is a 15-minute cooperative dexterity game. And I have brought it to game nights before. I've put it in my bag and I've schlepped it from point A to point B on foot. I wish I didn't have to, but I've done it before and I'll do it again. And that is For Science by Disclosure, my personal friend, R. Eric Royce, and Gray Fox Games. And those are the games we played last week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So, Mark, I'll, I'll do some key phrases here and see if you can guess the game that they're talking about. You got it. One of the best-selling board games of its generation. Oh, boy. Wildly popular hidden role game. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to go, well, let's see, what would disappoint me the most with such hyperbole? I'm going to go with Coup. The Werewolves of Miller's Hollow. Oh, sure. Really? You've heard of this? Because I, 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 I recognize the box. Wow. I've never played it or seen anyone play it or know anyone that owns it. The, the Werewolves of Miller's Hollow, is it not a commercial version of the open source mafia slash werewolf game? This, I have no idea. All I know is that that Asmodee has has secured a movie deal to go along with this game. I just thought those buzz phrases were fantastic about a game that I've never seen anyone ever play before. Yeah, it's Werewolf. Is it? All right. Well, it's just Werewolf. It's one of the commercial versions of Werewolf. I'm just surprised they went with that one as opposed to just saying Werewolf. Why would they go specifically with the Werewolves of Miller's Hollow? Because this is the one they have the license to. I suppose. <laughs> Are you talking about the movie company or Asmodee? Asmodee. It's because it's the one they have the right to. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so it's just a straight up version of Werewolf. 100%. Oh, that is so weird. <laughs>
In other driven by commerce news, many people have seen the Sherman drawing on Twitter and on BoardGameGeek and elsewhere about Kickstarter's shockingly tone-deaf announcement that it was moving to the blockchain for reasons. They announced that there will be benefits to the end user for reasons. There were a number of very prominent speculation threads about how this was all to avoid EU regulation. This turns out to be probably not the case because the EU regulation in question doesn't actually apply to crowdfunding, at least based on people's best guesses. I think the cynical and sort of Occam's razor explanation is probably the best. Blockchain is kind of sort of trendy and is a good way to attract venture capital. And it's important to remember that as far as commerce is concerned, Kickstarter does not view itself and doesn't position itself and doesn't act like it's trying to be a commerce center in any way. And this isn't about like, oh, well, you know, you're, 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 you're an investor, you're funding, you're, you're a part of the art. No, no, no. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, it views itself as a tech company, but the problem is it's tech is not interesting. And so making it a blockchain technology, ooh, well, that's ooh. possibly something as opposed to nothing. That's the future. Now, as far as companies cynically trying to position themselves in an effort to generate interest when really it doesn't affect the end consumer at all, I am enough of a capitalist to just shrug my shoulders and say, fine, you do you. Whatever you want to do to attract interest is, is, is okay. Blockchain, on the other hand, is a deeply, deeply problematic technology and platform for any number of reasons, the most prominent of which is probably in terms of environmental impact. And I do find the cynicism of, oh, we're moving to a carbon neutral version of blockchain, which is basically like saying, well, we'll burn down all these houses, but we'll build other ones elsewhere. Eh, I don't buy it, quite frankly, and nor do a lot of other people. We know so few of the details, but this looks really, really cynical, really harmful, and very damaging to Kickstarter. A whole bunch of creatives on the platform have said, no more, no mas. I used to support myself exclusively through Kickstarter, and now I'm going to investigate alternatives. A number of board game companies have said the same. And given the recent prominence of GameFound, love it or hate it, this, this seems like a strange timing for, for board games, especially given the prominence of board board games on Kickstarter and how much of their money comes from board game projects. I don't know where this is going. Suffice to say, I'm unimpressed and we will definitely be paying attention to developments going forward. It just seems very tone deaf. Like, like Agreed. not even know, like, do you, but that's just it. Their audience isn't us. Yes, their audience isn't even people running projects on Kickstarter. Their audience is venture capital, which has nothing to do with either the creators or the people who pay creators on their platform. It's just one of those weird schisms of the market about how they're, who they're trying to position for and who they're playing to. Anyway, more to follow. We know very little at the present moment. I'm pretty confident it's not going to redound to the benefit of everyone, anyone making or listening to this podcast. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Because it's December. Tons of news. It's, yes. It's true. Well, the most important news is that Santa Claus is coming to town. Oh, how creepy is that? Yeah, pretty creepy. Not as creepy as baby it's cold outside. <laughs> because is nothing is as creepy as that. <laughs> Now on to our feature game. Walker, what is our feature game? Our feature game is Cryo by Z-Man Games. Cryo was designed by Tom Jolly and Luke Laurie. Luke Laurie is a designer who's known for a number of recent designs, including Dwellings of Eldervale, more on that later, Whistle Mountain, and Manhattan Project Energy Empire. 
Tom Jolly is a veteran of the industry. He's been around for quite a while and has designed a number of influential and or quite compelling designs, including, for example, Manhattan Project Energy Empire, which he also co-designed with Luke Laurie, but also WizWar, Yes, the original Wiz War and many of its subsequent iterations. One of the original free-for-all smack-em-around wild card effect games. Cave Troll, Battle for Rakugan, which is probably a favorite of the show. All the Disc War games, which is a long-running game system that has shown up in a variety of iterations over the years. And probably my personal favorite of his quirky designs, Lightspeed and its redesigned version Stellar Conflict. So, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Cryo? In Cryo... It's an action efficiency game. You're when it's your turn, you have some decisions to make. Because sounds like a game to me. I know it's crazy, right? It's one of these games where you're going to be putting out some workers and then you need to pull them back, but you can pull them back whenever you want. So you can put one out. You have three different workers. You can pull one out, pull them back right away. Because when you pull back, you get sort of an engine to run. So when do you do this? Like what? You know what? How many other workers of other people put out? When are they going to pull their workers back? What action stations are left? What incident tokens are out there, or which ones are pending? What caverns have been revealed? Do I want to trigger the end of the game because that action also ends the ends the game as well? So lots of things to think about just at the beginning of your turn. Never mind what action to take or stuff like that. Fantastic game. Somewhat unusually, I would actually like to start with the theme before we get into a lot of those details. The theme of this game is aggressively bleak. Cryo is a depressing game, not because even of what you're going to be doing to other people in the game. There's not a whole lot of backstabbing, although there's some. But the theme of Cryo is that you are a failed colonization mission that has crash landed on an inhospitable planet. I just want to say, because they could have just said that. (laughs) <laughs> they could have just said they crashed, and now you have to deal with it. No, right. it's anonymous sabotage that caused the ships to crash. Yeah, no one's really sure why it crashed. Yeah. And you're not waiting for a rescue. The game makes it clear that no rescue is coming. You just have to get to these caverns because it's too cold on the surface to survive. So you're basically, it's it's kind of like the more depressing version of Swiss Family Robinson or Lost in Space. Here's your new life. Get used to it, eating fungus and living in a cave in a science fiction environment. It doesn't permeate a whole lot of the game, but I do appreciate how dark it is. Yeah, and it's got a lot of the tropes of those, those po- a lot of the po- post-apocalyptic games we play where, you know, we could all work together and survive <laughs> and do this together, but we can't because of factions. Yes, So (laughs) Walker talked about incident tokens and how that influences the tempo is very salient because when you pull your workers back, this has been a very, very common design element. And it's actually been seen in a lot of other Luke Laurie's designs. I mean, Dwellings of Elder Vale does it. A number of other recent worker placement games do it uh, along with Whistle Stop. Whistle Stop and Dwellings of Elder Vale both do it from Luke Laurie. And when you pull your workers back in cryo, you trigger an incident token. Now, very frequently, this incident token just gives you some resource and just contributes towards the clock of the game. But that alone is significant because you can determine whether the game is going to run fast or run slightly slower. But a very common incident token is more sabotage, which will blow up yet more cryopods. And this I find compelling not only because it's a little more player interaction, a little bit more teeth to the interaction, but it also seriously influences the tempo. You can't just figure, well, I'm going to go and I'm going to wake up my crew members in the most efficient way possible. You start looking at where the incident tokens are and it's like, oh, if I don't wake that person up right now, they're going to die. Uh, so I'd better make sure I do it. It's okay, Mark. They're sleeping. <laughs> right. Now, sometimes you have to let them die. It's just the nature of the thing. But it's another trade-off and another element of very, very pointed tempo that I appreciate in Cryo. 
Yeah, not only do you get these incident tokens, but there's also uh, sometimes you get loot. Sometimes there's also this salvage mechanism where you can not only do you wake them up to go to war, but you can wake them up to go to work. So it's like, <laughs> hello, are you in there? Can you get up now? It's time to work. You know, get us stuff. So you sort of lock them into these positions. And now every time you pull your workers back, they get you more stuff. And it also helps focus the scoring, which I also appreciate in modern Euro designs. Because, so there is a score pad, sure, because you've got to have a score pad now. But there's only five lines on the score pad. And most of your points are going to come from what have you done with your people? How many of them have you woken up? How many of them have you sent into caves? That's where the bulk of your points is gonna, are going to get. And so it feeds in thematically. It feeds in in terms of the pressure of this tempo. And it means that you're not going to be filling out an elaborate spreadsheet at the end of the game in order to determine your score. So this is one of the many reasons why when comparing a lot of other very, very recent Euro games, I've said, look, it's not even just stuff from 10 years ago. Even Cryo from this year can do it a lot better. And that focus on waking up the people makes a whole lot of sense and is reflected in the gameplay. Yeah, I like the action space as well because they're sort of spiderwebby. That's not just you can do one thing. It's like you go there and there's, you know, all these different selections on the outside. So you can choose which one you want to do. So there's lots of things you can do. You can launch uh, vehicles out to go into these caverns. You can uh, scout them out because you can't go to these caverns unless you flip them up. You can, like we said, put people to work, get supplies, wake people up, lots of different things you can do. And of course, it has all the usual things you can do, get resources or turn stuff into other stuff. Okay, so the turning stuff into other stuff is very, very standard, very, very stock. But let's talk a little bit about the resource tiles, how, how they've which is what they're called in cryo. And this is something that we complained about in Dwellings of Eldervale, that it wasn't used enough. When you go and you get a resource tile, it will show one resource or maybe one of two different resources or maybe two resources. You can either cash in that tile for the actual resources, in which case you have so far so standard Euro game. I send my worker out and the worker comes back with two rubies, whatever. But you can also slot it into your action board and make it permanently a part of your engine. So instead of using those two rubies to cash into rubies, you slot it into your engine board. And now for the rest of the game, when you pull back workers, you can trade in one gear to turn it into two rubies. Or you take that gear or ruby tile and slot it into your card slot. And every time you pull back workers, you can spend a gear or a ruby to do a card action. More on that later. And that trade-off makes what would otherwise be a bone standard, boring standard thing that we've seen in dozens and dozens of other worker placement games more interesting, more compelling, and make it feed back into that tempo consideration that we talked about before. Further pressure and further nuance about when to pull your workers back. I love it. And you make all sorts of different engines because you have six different slots that you can pull your three workers back into. The very first one is just a free slot that you have to pay for, and the other five are turn what token you put in the top into whatever token you put in the bottom. So you can create this very interesting engine and it runs in order. So you have to, so you can get resources first to use them in the later slots. Great mechanism. I have found my greatest success in cryo when I force myself to diversify the engine. It is very possible, and some people don't like this aspect of cryo, to just use the same action lines over and over and over again. You have three workers, so put out your three workers, you call them back, run the same three bars of your engine, wash, rinse, repeat. You can do that. And even then, it is still a reasonably compelling your game experience. 
I have found greater success, though, when I'm willing to be sufficiently flexible and I take the time and I make the effort to make sure that I have an engine that can respond to the needs of the moment. And so I use different engine lines at different times. And sometimes I pull back just two workers. And on rare occasions, I even just pull back the one worker. I wish there had been slightly more pressure to make sure that every game was that interesting and that varied. And sometimes it's not. But the fact that there is that potential for greater success if you force yourself to do that is something I appreciate. You talked about cards. Let's talk about cards. Let's talk about cards. You want multi-use cards? Baby, we got multi-use cards. They can be same cards, can be upgrades, missions, vehicles, scrap. Use them how you wish. And the way they implement it is fantastic. Do a card action. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means draw a card, play a card, do whatever you want. It's a card action. Use it however you like. No, no, you know, funny business, no wishy-washy rules. Love it. Yeah, so frequently in these multi-use cards, like, well, to play the card this way, you need to pay this kind of cost. To play this card this other way, you need to pay a different... No, 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 no. It's all the same. And that straightforwardness, it still provides a fair amount of tension. You've got this card in your hand, and always, 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 there's that scrap possibility. Every turn, you can ditch one card, you don't even need the card action, to get free resources. And it doesn't matter how good the technology is, how good the in-game scoring is, that scrap option is always there. And so even if the vehicle format doesn't do you any... Uh, doesn't do you any favors and doesn't, you don't find it appealing, there's still that tension about what to do with these cards. And furthermore, that always means if you get two or three card actions in an action, you don't know how many cards you need to draw because there's a fair amount of variety in the deck. You don't know what your scrap needs might be several turns down the road. The tension is there and it offers a significant amount of variety. And in that, you get through a very, very simple rule set, a lot of things that a lot of other games, picking on none in particular, but just mentioning, for example... Russian Railroad slash Ultimate Railroads, which had this weird multi-step process by which you get to the endgame scoring cards. It was one of the weird ancillary bits that we said much of the game is super, super clean, but then there's some other peripheral bits. In Cryo, your endgame scoring cards are just, well, they're printed on these cards that you have, and how do you play them? Well, it's a card action. That's all there is to it. And so you get the same level of variety and the same level of trade-offs and the same level of toys, and who doesn't love playing with toys, with such an economy of rules. That does actually lead to one of my criticisms about the variability that you can get in cryo. You've commented on this before, and this is not one of those times, I think, when you're just whining. I think you actually have a point. If it is the case that the resource tile showing a card action is on the board, if you can just grab that quickly and just get a free card action every time you call back your workers, it seems like a no-brainer. It's true. It, It seems awfully powerful. Yeah. So why are we doing all this, Mark? Why are we getting all these resources? Why are we putting out vehicles and upgrading cards and waking up our guys is because we're trying to get in, getting them into these caverns to make them safe. And this is a area majority type thing. Cause this is where the big points are. You're waking these guys up, you're loading them in the vehicles, you're driving them down through these tunnels into these caverns. And so they have to be flipped up and they're all different sorts of binomes. And so you have to have crystals so you can throw them into the crystal one and, oxygen or I don't know what are the different <laughs> minerals and crystals it's your game there's the pink one yeah, there's the gray one yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the colored the, the, the color of the resource the, yeah, yeah exactly the, the weird stuff and then you need certain certain energy to get the the stuff down there and then it's whoever has the most in an area so that's sort of, it's sort of a, a war game in that 
in that instance. Well, I, don't well know, I don't know about that. Well, okay, yeah, well, they're, they're all just, standing around. It's like, okay, well, let me count a second. You have one, two, four. You you have five people. We have, we have six. Okay, we win. So, okay, you guys have to leave now. I'm sure that's how it goes. It has nothing to do with, you know, fighting or okay. battling. Okay, first of all, you always get a fair amount of points just for having pods in every cave. You're going to get your two points per pod regardless of who has the most. Secondly, there's no active conflict in the game. It's more a question of area majority. I refuse to accept the idea that all direct player interaction and competition in games makes it a war game. That is nonsense, and I think that's a I disservice say, to Euro games in general. I didn't say it was a war game. I said they, they're going to war. <laughs> it doesn't make it a war game. It's that they're not standing around and saying, oh, okay. you, have, you have more guys and us okay we'll leave we'll go let's, back to the surface it's let's split the difference up there let's split the difference and say that whoever has the numerical superiority sets up a rigid caste system in which the dominant force gets to boss around the, the weaker force forever sure if that lets you sleep better at night <laughs> so i mean and again this is what i look for whenever possible a certain degree of player interaction makes me very happy in a lot of games and worker placement with area majority is is a pretty good formula. I really like it in Empire Age of Discovery. I like it in Tribune. Tribune isn't really area majority. It's more of, of direct player conflict in terms of putting out cards. But you can look at the card sets as a kind of an area majority mechanic. And Cryo is reminiscent of that. And I especially appreciate that given that the worker placement is what I would call loose. This is a bit of a false dichotomy. But to my mind, when you've got a worker placement game, it's got to be tight insofar as the worker spaces are very, very much in competition. And there's precious little room to maneuver. Games like Russian and Ultimate Railroads, just to mention something I've already mentioned, or like Agricola, or it could be loose, like A Feast for Odin, or Caverna, or in this case, Cryo. I never really felt like, ooh, that's a place I really need to get to. I gotta get there quick while the timing is there. To a certain extent, that's okay, again, because there's competition elsewhere, and if you had that rigid sense of timing, then who, you might end up with somewhat arbitrary benefits. It's like, oh, the space is, the space that everyone needs to get to just happens to be open because Sally took her workers back at the right time. And so ever to the left of her gets to benefit. And that wouldn't be satisfying either. But just to emphasize, I like it when there's a certain degree of confrontation and competition. Sometimes that's through tightness of worker placement spaces. And sometimes that's through other means. And so Cryo has that as well. Yeah. And there's different. And there's definitely different paths you can go. You know, you can go heavy and going out to the caverns or building up your engine very quickly and more diversify there or putting your workforce to work very quickly early game so you get those free resources every turn. So there's lots of different ways you can play. It's not the same. Much like, hey, did we mention Ultimate Railroads yet? Where you're obviously <laughs> taking the, you know, the coin action or the person action. You know, there's not right. those obvious spots that you're going to every time. There's, or, you know, every game, not just every, you know, every game the same. But, you know, you can play differently every time. It's true. I find actually one of the interesting bits of variation for me is how often I scout. Because there's a number of different ways to get into a cavern. You can go into an existing cavern, or you can do a scout action. And there are different trade-offs for both of them. They're both ways to get your workers into caves, but they have different costs and tempo considerations associated with them. And I do appreciate that little challenge of what to do with your workforce. Not not your workers. Your workers actually cryo or drones. But the actual people that you've woken up and the different ways you can put them to work. Yeah, and that's being said, I, I'm wondering, does it seem like it's not getting very much play? Like, I'm not seeing it around very much. It, it seems like it's going under the radar, as they say. It could well be. I mean, there are so many worker placement games released all the time, and indeed one of the reasons why we've decided to talk about Cryo is because it is one of the many in a crowded field that is worth coming back to, and we've really appreciated. We've played several times back-to-back -back and just, you know, 
appreciated the different approaches to getting our workers out and around and different ways to get different endgame scoring conditions. It's also the kind of game where even since we've uh, we first played it, we've stopped playing it for three or four months and then we've come back to it and it's like, oh yeah, I remember how smooth and satisfying and good and tight this game is in a number of ways. And I do find it disappointing that more people haven't found Cryo. It's 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 a lovely little Euro game. Yeah, plus the di- we didn't really talk about it. just the different ways you can use the cards too because we just said, you know, you put them in via- your pods and vehicles and take them out, but the vehicles have all different sorts of special abilities and different things that they do. Yeah. And all- the, to- the toy factor is shockingly high. Just in terms of the vehicles alone. But yeah, on top of that, there are the techs and a lot of the techs are fun to play with and give you very cool special abilities. There's a lot of interesting stuff to see in Cryo, again, in a, in a relatively tight package. So in conclusion, I would play Cryo at any time. It's a great worker placement game. It's not that hard to teach. It, you know, you're putting your workers out, you're getting the stuff, you're converting them into stuff. It has a nice theme to it, nice backstabby. As long as people know it's going to be aggressive, pods are going to explode, people are going to perish, and you're going to laugh at the person because they had a chance to get those people out, and they didn't, and they saw the explosion coming, and they let them die. To a certain extent, Cryo is a big hit with me because it ticks a lot of the boxes that I think are unique to my preferences when it comes to your games in general and worker placing games in particular. But I think even if you're not of the particular emphasis that I place on those elements, the player interaction, the tightness, the direct competition, the relatively clean scoring systems, I think there's a lot to, to find appealing in Cryo, even if you're more a fan of things generally. The fact that it gives some teeth and some interest and detail and nuance to the pulling back workers element that so many recent Eurogames games have done. It doesn't have some degenerate turn order problems by virtue of when people pull workers back, by virtue of the fact that things are pretty loose, and you get to play with toys. And ultimately, at the end of the day, that I think is an appeal that a lot of people like, and one of the reasons why a lot of... I'm just going to say, we didn't even talk about the fact that your workers are these really cool, like, drony, spaceshipy looking things that look amazing. A lot of the components I quite like. I yeah. really like the cover art of Cryo. I think it's quite visually appealing. And the card art is okay. But yeah, there are a lot of little visual flourishes that help to differentiate it as well. So yeah, we both are big fans of Cryo. Delightful game. Give it a shot if you haven't already. Cryo by Z-Man Games, Tom Jolly, and Luke Laurie. Well, that's going to do it for us. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, let's try something new here. So Wrong Games slash Contact. There's a million different ways you can get in in touch with us. You can check out our Patreon page. You can check out all manner of other Twitch streams. So wrong games slash contact. Oh, that that's nice and easy, nice and it probably has my email address it there. Does. It has our Twitter. And, it does, and the clickety clacks that all those. It's got the bloops are. as well. Ooh, the bloops. Yeah, yeah. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thank you again so very much for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Sweet, peace. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bicken. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. And exclusive for our Patreon listeners, if you go to SoWrongGames.com and to the contacts area, you can get to our OnlyFans page. Not safe for work.